Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence and we're very happy that Edelman are a partner on some of our club events including tonight. It's a wonderful venue to do events like this. Before I hand over to Stefan Stern, I'm going to say two things. One is that this event is linked in a way to next week's Comment Awards. We run the UK Comment Awards. And so we know from the interest shown in those that people are very interested in the role of comment and opinion. So that's the hook for this event. For those of you not in our happy club tent, I will say that we know from the people who are that in this day of information overload, people want face-to-face Facebook more than they want anything else. And we do that in a variety of ways, as well as events like this. So if you have not yet made your way to the wonderful stall that we set out, you should, I hope, consider it. I'm now going to pass you over to Stefan. If you are tweeting, you can do the hashtag EIClub. Stefan is, of course, a commentator even now that he's director of strategy at Edelman. He is a professor, and he's an all-rounder, and he's an avid tweeter, and I'll spare his blushes. Stefan. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, so good to see so many of you here this evening. Thank you for coming. Welcome to to Edelman. In fact, looking around the audience, I think we could probably get quite a good paper out here this evening. Mm -hmm. I think we've got some leader writers and some correspondents and a sports guy over there and... But that's not. It's a difficult market to launch newspapers in. Um, Thank you for coming. Comment, yes. Opinion and debate, who sets the terms of the public conversation? It's a rather big and grand question. Um, Ian Jack, uh, the former editor of The Independent on Sunday, said a little while ago that these days uh, newspapers have more columns than the Parthenon. Um, and you know what he means. There is this fantastic proliferation, explosion of column writing, of opinion writing. Um, journalists, I think, deep down, feel that the real job, the core task, if you like, of journalism is reporting. It's finding things out. It's getting facts into the paper. And that opinion and comment was a, initially perhaps a secondary function. However, as we know, the conventional wisdom tells us that News is everywhere. News is a commodity. It's universally and instantly available. It doesn't set you apart in any way. But what can set you apart as a newspaper in this difficult market is the quality uh, of the analysis and commentary and the insights of special people. And hence, the argument goes, the growth and expansion of more and more columns and columnists. Uh, We've got a fantastic panel, as you can see, to help us through this uh, territory and then some time for some questions afterwards. Some of you have come from businesses who want to know, if, and, and also not-for-profit organizations, want to know if, how to influence the debate. Is it possible? Who are these people? Can you reach them? Can you encourage them to write nice things about you? We'll find out. I'll introduce our panelists to you in the order in which I'm going to ask them to speak. They'll all do about um, five minutes uh, each, and then there'll be some time for questions. And I think we'll finish at about 8 o'clock, roughly. Uh, Anne Spackman, next to me here, is a real live comment editor. In fact, she's doing it right now, <laughs> I think. But that's OK. We're all multitasking. Uh, comment editor of The Times, but of course, in a distinguished career, also at The 
indie at the FT, also been a managing editor, been an online editor, and initially at the Sunday Times, I think, in the National Press. So you know 19th everything. 19th century. <laughs> you know everything. Thank you, Anne. Well, we look forward to hearing uh, from you. Uh, Anne will be followed by Ian Martin, who uh, you know from also a very varied and distinguished career at, uh, at the Telegraph, at the Scotsman, at the Wall Street Journal, and now contributing regularly to the Daily Mail and other lucky recipients of your work. I'm slightly daunted being on a panel with Ian because you'll know from his Twitter feed, if you follow him, at Ian Martin one that he's not only one of the most robust and independent-minded commentators on the political scene, he's also got a very sharp eye for men's fashion <laughs> and tailoring. And I'm, I've turned up in my sort of distressed, <laughs> distressed geography teacher look. And I, I, think, I think I'm going to get a real kicking later on. But never mind. Never mind. I'm sure I'll be, I'm sure I'll be kind. After Ian, delighted to say we've got Jenny Gray with us, uh, who uh, rejoices in the, the best job title you've heard today, which I better read out to get it right. Jenny is Director of Policy Communications at Number 10 and the Cabinet Office. So it's you can austerity. You can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're living. They're living. They're practicing the policy. Uh, you've got to be in two places at the same time. Indeed. Well, not quite. Um, but Jenny has a distinguished career in communications uh, back at Tommies and Guys way back, and then at the Audit Commission. And then My very first PR client, although it was McDonald's, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> well, clearly you're responsible for the dramatic turnaround in their, uh, in their image. And joining the Cabinet Office three, yeah, years, three ago, years ago, but now with this umbrella title. So we'll look forward to hearing about the calm and orderly uh, world of government, what it's like being on the receiving end of all these columns. I think the last government did calculate that there are perhaps over 200 columns a week mm. in one place or another that may have to be dealt with, responded to. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more than the Parthenon. Um, and our final speaker will be David Smith, uh, who really needs very little introduction for 20 years, the economics editor of the Sunday Times and explaining everything to us every Sunday, one of the genuine must-read columns, uh, as well as also writing leaders uh, for the Sunday Times. And uh, David, I think, will be interesting being a columnist in a specialist beat uh, as opposed to some other columnists who, you know, range very freely indeed, uh, depending on if they've got anything to say or not that week. Uh, there they are, um, and perhaps you could start us off with the life of a real-life comment editor. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed, Stefan. Hello, everybody. The real reason I'm fiddling on with this wretched phone whose battery is running out is because on it I've got the um, edited copy we're printing tomorrow of Paul Dacre's evidence given to the Leveson inquiry today, which some of you may either have heard or have seen. And I thought, if we're really talking about who frames the public debate, one of the people who does it is Paul Dacre. <laughs> And, um, and one of the things he said, I've been fiddling so it wouldn't suddenly shut down on me. Um, so in talking about phone hacking, he said, after saying he unequivocally condemned the practice, he said, but let's keep all this in proportion. Britain's cities weren't looted as a result. No one died. The banks didn't collapse because of the news of the world. Elected politicians continued to steal from the people they were paid to represent. <laughs> The nation didn't go to war. I feel I ought to be standing up by now. Um, yet the response has been a judicial inquiry with greater powers than those possessed by the public inquiries into the Iraq war. It includes a panel of experts who, while honourable, distinguished people, don't have the faintest clue how mass-selling newspapers operate. Uh, I'd like to put it to you, that is the public debate. That is the thing that we will be talking about in Leveson. And... Um, 
and it comes from somebody who still works in the old-fashioned business of newspapers. Um, as, uh, as Stefan mentioned, my last job, uh, I was in charge of the digital side of, of the Times and the Sunday Times. And to my immense surprise, as somebody who worries enormously about the future of, of newspapers and of journalism, one of the first things I learned in that job was the power of newspapers. Because what we do online, to a certain extent, is ephemeral. And you can produce all kinds of things um, on websites, on phones now. This was in the era before Twitter. Um, you can produce all these things which are important, which are valid, which, um, which, which may strike a chord. But it's very difficult, if you can't hold them, for them to still continue to have a resonance that lasts beyond 24 hours. And as I say, I find this to my complete surprise and to a certain extent inconvenience in that particular job. Uh, but if you are trying to get public figures to actually say important things, in many ways they are much happier still doing that in newspapers. As I say, this, this to me was a real surprise. Um, and it continues to be the case now. It is a lot easier if you're going to ask somebody extremely powerful if they want to write you a piece, if you say you're going to put it on your opinion pages. So that is, that's one of my surprises. Um, what people often say is, why should newspapers, why should the brands of newspapers still have that kind of power and resonance, given that they have declining, we have declining circulations, certainly in print? And I think Paul Dacre gives a bit of that answer in one of the other passages of what he said. And my colleague, Daniel Finkelstein, one of the um, pillars of the Parthenon, um, <laughs> he, he also has written a little bit about this. Um, and <coughs> their argument is essentially, that uh, newspapers only have power in as much as they reflect the voices of a chunk of the population. And if they didn't do it, they would have none. And so it's not that they tell their readers what to think, it's that they reflect what their readers do think. That is essentially um, the proposition. And even though newspapers uh, in particular have seen their circulations decline, although obviously their online mobile audience, iPad audiences have grown, um, they still represent quite large chunks uh, of a population. And so I think that's partly why they're still so involved in framing what we talk about in a day. But just to move on to, um, to the most important, I think, um, aspect of, of the development of, of the debate now, to a certain extent, we're all in a loop. So uh, something appears in the Sunday Times. David Smith writes something on a Sunday. It's picked up by the Today programme on the Monday morning. They get somebody in who they interview. In that interview, that person says something which sparks off another story. The person who has been insulted in that story then comes onto Sky and talks about it on Sky. People tweet about it. And, and on round and round it goes. And we all feed on each other much more than we used to when we used to wait for the paper to land on the mat 10 years ago. Um, we all talk to each other more. And so I think the conversation itself, the public debate, has, um, has become more amorphous. I think it's, it's become more circular. Pardon me. And it's also speeded up. We now, we now move things on at such a pace. Um, we had a big discussion about whether or not to put the, uh, the Dacre piece in the Times tonight on the basis of whether or not too many of you would already be familiar with what's in it. But to a certain extent, there is still a moment when you know, big beasts come out of the jungle and they thump their chest and you, know, <laughs> and you think, well, we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll pull up some trees for them. Um, but th the, those issues of speed have really changed. Um, one of the things that I do really worry about is the people who take part in those debates in that loop may be 
a smaller part of the community than we want to believe. And I wonder how many voices, when Paul Dacre claims to speak for the voiceless, I wonder how many of the voiceless we are speaking for at times. And I particularly wonder about those groups of people who don't feel that they really are in any way represented by the public conversation. Um, I wonder, for example, if you were in the kitchen of a restaurant uh, where everybody who works there would probably be an immigrant worker. Many of them might be from Eastern Europe. What's the conversation going on in the kitchens of our restaurants amongst Polish chefs and waiters? Um, are we really representing all of that? So whilst there is a public debate, I think we ought to be very alive to the limits of how far we're stretching that, how far we're opening that up. Uh, and extending it in the ways that we need to, to reflect um, the population of 2011 rather than the population of 1960s. Thank you. Excellent point to end on. David, you might be able to confirm the story. This is rather the opposite attitude to that, it is said, held by Peter Jay when writing a piece on the economy for The Times 30 or 40 years ago when a sub queried <laughs> a line in saying it wasn't clear and Jay is said to have replied that this piece is going to be understood by three people in the country and you are not one of them? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that to be true, yeah. It's yeah, too, good, yeah, too, yeah, good to yeah, too good to check. Too good to check that story. Thank you. Ian. Thank you very much. And I, I presume that we're taking it as read for the purposes of this evening that um, who sets the terms of the public conversation, that it's not the voters. Um, and I presume that we're largely, principally, though not exclusively, talking about, talking about politics and the shaping of politics. Um, I think traditional media still essentially sets the terms uh, of debates and fixes them. Amplified, of course, I mean principally the print media, amplified by the BBC, as Anne said. But why is that? I mean, I think print is still, it's still where that wonderful editorial process, still, even despite cutbacks, still properly staffed, where people discuss and reflect on news in a way that um, is still exciting and still results in something very, very um, powerful. And this is why, we're, whilst we're apparently living through the death of print, which, which incidentally we're not, um, <laughs> new media and social media, of course, uh, there's been an explosion of both. I speak as an enthusiastic user of Twitter and a uh, reformed uh, blogger um, when I was at the uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, and they're tremendously exciting uh, forms, and they're obviously changing the business in all sorts of ways that I'm sure we can, we can, we can talk about. But they do essentially still with a few exceptions, take their lead from what's happening in the old traditional uh, print world. Much of it is still aggregation. Very good, very cleverly done ag aggregation. Some of it is about um, revealing stories that um, are generated by Fleet Street but somehow don't quite make it into the paper because they're too difficult for someone to handle so they find their way onto Guido. But the, the, the real driving force is still the reporters, the editing process, uh, the columnists and the, and the, and the comment editors. Um, but I think that essentially uh, newspapers can be very smug about this. Uh, and I um, speak as someone who spent my entire career in, uh, in newspapers. Uh, I think politicians drive um, or set the terms of the debate much more than we realize. Um, and that's, we, we live in a, it's a curious paradox really. We've, We've lived through this period where politicians have never been more scared of the media and are desperate at every turn to um, ensure that they don't fall out, uh, they're not on the wrong side of uh, public opinion. So their remarks are mediated and 
calibrated by uh, reference to focus groups uh, and all the rest of it. So in one sense, most politicians that I encounter are too timid, terrified of the newspapers, uh, and driven, driven by that sort of post-1992 James Carville stroke Alistair Campbell approach to, um, uh, approach, to doing, approach to doing business, which is fundamentally defensive in its outlook. However, there are a couple of uh, huge exceptions in the last couple of decades. Um, if you think, uh, and I'm probably going to offend some people in this room, but let's take, let's take Gordon Brown. Um, I cannot think of, I mean, let's, let's examine his central, uh, his central analysis in the boom years, which I would fundamentally disagree with. Um, I think David would as well. But the idea of the end to boom and bust, which is, I think, one of the most lunatic ideas in, in human discourse. I mean, it's all the historical evidence suggests it's a completely insane uh, basis on which to build a national policy and to run an exchequer. However, it's an incredibly powerful idea which did set the terms of debate. It captivated the opposition. It destroyed the Tory opposition, actually. And, and, and the Tories only got back in the game when they accepted Labour's spending limits, which is an extraordinary thing. It, um, those, ter those terms of reference were broadly accepted by the BBC, not by everyone on Fleet Street, but essentially politics between 95 stroke 97 to, until the crash, uh, it's the debate on economics is conducted uh, uh, to a set of terms fixed by, um, by Gordon Brown. So you have to, in a sense, you have to, you have to admire that out of, you have to admire the, the Schutzbar really, that out of this terrified um, political class, uh, which is scared of ideas and scared of offending the public, comes um, someone determined to, just through talent, um, force of personality, megalomania, uh, all sorts of things, uh, shifted the public debate in a very interesting and very important way. Blair did it on Iraq as well. Um, uh, everyone, everyone now pretends that they were opposed to the war in Iraq, but actually look at the polls uh, in, in March '03. Blair had done a very convincing job for, all, for reasons um, I'm sure we'll now uh, understand all too clearly. So I think the politicians, I would just conclude by saying the politicians are much more powerful, good or rather effective, strong politicians and leaders are more, uh, more influential in this regard than we give them credit for. Thank you, Ian. I mean, I, I agree with that. I hope it's not a sentimental or nostalgic point about newsprint. I mean, I was at the FT, I was sitting a few feet away from the comment desk at the height of the, or depth of the crisis, and this avalanche of economists from around the world and professors and dignitaries and grand people who wanted to get some words into the, those, that sacred space of the FT at that time was extraordinary. And it was, I think, explicitly to be in the paper uh, in the first instance, whatever else happens at the call. Mm. So for the time being, this stuff still <coughs> seems to have a, an impact, I think, but we can discuss that. Uh, Jenny, enlighten us, please. Well, inevitably, not being a journalist, I think I'll come from a different perspective. And I, I started out by thinking of a presentation on a not dissimilar subject, actually, that I had to give a little while ago, bizarrely, to 30 directs of communication from various parts of the Chinese government. Uh, as an audience, they were marginally less intimidating than you. It was, a it was a surreal occasion for a number of reasons. And one, the first was when I asked around government for some case studies to illustrate some great campaigns that we've run. The first I got, in fact, from one of Andrew's colleagues from the Foreign Office was on cyber security, which I didn't think was quite the thing with that particular <laughs> audience. <laughs> 
The other, the other surreal thing was the absolutely fierce grilling I had and how, how well we'd effectively communicated the tuition fees policy, which I wasn't <laughs> expecting either. And while obviously I had to accept that we could have done better, eventually I did feel the need to remind them that they have a little bit more power than I do and we do to shape the media agenda, their <laughs> media agenda. So I suppose in thinking about it, at the heart of this question, we're talking about power, where it lies and where the balance of that power is changing perhaps as a result of social media and broader social trends. Now, the question, obviously, of who, who has the power to set the media agenda has been a topic of concern probably for the last century. And I think it was the American commentator, um, Walter Lippmann, who coined the phrase manufacturing consent. And others like Chomsky have all criticised the role of the elites in collusion with people like uh, Rupert Murdoch for dominating that agenda. And, and having been employed by some of those elites myself, from business to NGOs, and I'd include them within that, as well as more recently government. It's obviously true that these groups do have various degrees of success in putting their issue on the agenda, not only because they have capital behind them and they can afford to pay the likes of Stefan's no doubt very large fees these days <laughs> to help them get into the, to persuade, um, to persuade and to cover their pieces on the pages of the Times, but also because they have the ability to mobilise large interest groups, witness the students um, when it came to tuition fees. So I think in general we have quite a healthy society and this is a sign <coughs> of a healthy civic society. Um, of course there are big problems we're talking about the media agenda and in assuming that the media agenda is a good proxy for, for what people are actually thinking about and discussing in their daily lives as, as Anne alluded to. And I think in number 10, surrounded as we are by numerous t television showing all of the rolling news channels and all of the papers stacked up on our desks, I suspect that we're more guilty than most at making that mistake. Um, and I like to remind people as we watch PMQs that probably more people are watching the channel Dave than are watching Dave on PMQs at that point. <laughs> anyway, even if the running order of the 10 o'clock news reflected the number 10 grid, and it won't surprise you that the Secretary of State def for Defence's friend isn't exactly what we hope to be talking about this week, <laughs> it's not the same as setting, I think, the terms of the public conversation. For example, and I, I think I don't think I'm betraying too much, that we were very pleased a few weeks ago that in the week that the pupils went back to school to have a good run of stories across the week on our education reforms. I can't remember, but maybe we even Michael even persuaded Anne to, to cover a column, I don't know, to, to let him have an op-ed. Anyway, as you can imagine, we were very pleased ourselves. We always try and kind of theme weeks. But as you can imagine, the, news, the users of Mumsnet were talking about little else that week. Not. <laughs> um, so the truth is that those who are seeking to influence the public conversation are actually competing for a very small amount of people's mind space. So I liked a few stats that I gathered for this. Um, ten, more ten times more people watched the Great British Bake Off final than watched B BBC Breakfast News at its peak. Um, there were 30 million votes cast in the 2010 election and, and 10 million votes were cast for the X Factor final alone. <laughs> Um, I don't think I should say this, but I will. Many more people like Marmite on Facebook than the Prime Minister, apparently. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> somehow I need to segue from that to my final point, which is I suppose that it's apt, I think, that we're talking about conversation, because it seems to me in, in my profession um, that engaging audiences in a dialogue is, is an increasingly important objective. The previous government, as um, Deborah knows, put a lot of energy into deliberative exercises, citizen juries, etc., not only to inform policy, but also as part of its overall communications strategy. 
And this government has tended to do that more online, for example, the Your Freedom app, which had 500,000 visits, 15,000 ideas and influenced a bill. And the, the petitions website, the top, the top petition on that at the moment is, is about, give, is, is about um, cutting benefits for people who rioted recently. So uh, the other thing about this government, it's made a big commitment, I'm sorry I'm going to go into PR mode because I have got this audience, is it has made a huge commitment to transparency and is putting, it's one of the kind of uncommented things actually at the moment, is that it's putting vast amounts of data about government and public performance unfiltered online. Um, that's actually quite a big step in, the, in, in terms of putting the hands in the power in the hands of citizens and of course journalists um, and frankly will make my job a lot more difficult. It, as people mash the data and find all kinds of stories that we'd rather perhaps you didn't know. So now I think I'll conclude by saying that perhaps I should move to China after all. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the Chinese. What did they think of our press? Did they say anything? Did they? Um... No, they were remarkably kind of silent, <laughs> what? other than when they were attacking me on tuition fees. <laughs> what did they think of the concept of a free press? They were mostly interested in the lobby and how the lobby works. And, uh, and they were also interested in the, in, the, um, in, the sort of, in the difference between a special advisor and a government <coughs> communicator, which they found very hard to get their heads around, not surprisingly. They're not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, David, finish off for us. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, naturally, when I knew I was coming here tonight, I did some uh, research. And um, I discovered that the, um, the first op-ed pages came into existence in the uh, 1920s in America. But the op-ed pages as we know them now probably uh, date back to around about 1970, again from America, uh, New York Times. But um, as Anne and others have said, you know, we've seen a proliferation of columns. And uh, my other uh, bit of research was just counting up the, um, uh, the columns and leaders today in the broadsheets. And um, I got to 50 uh, without even getting onto the Daily Mail, Daily Express or the other tabloids, or the Wall Street Journal Europe, other papers that are around. So uh, I think your estimate of 200 is probably an understatement. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're at least 100 a day. And we've also got this uh, phenomenon um, these days, which is the, um, you know, the media equivalent of straight to DVD, which is that uh, the column which um, there isn't quite room for in the paper. Uh, but goes straight onto the website. And some people are, uh, are pleased to write those. Other people um, pull them when it's mentioned to them they won't go in the paper. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting and uh, expanding phenomenon. Now, how, how, does this, um, how does this stuff influence people? Well, I think part of it is the, um, you know, the people trust certain names. So I'm slightly doubtful about whether occasional op-ed pieces uh, written by people, written by, uh, you know, guest writers or the people who are, were desperate to get into the FT during the financial crisis and so on. Some of those have, have influence. Some of them don't, because, unless people know them, you know. So I think you build, up, you build up a relationship with the reader, which the occasional columnist, the occasional uh, opinion writer uh, doesn't do. It is certainly helpful to have uh, a column picked up and amplified on social media, particularly Twitter. So you know, what, what helps you stand out from the rest is when somebody tweets about it and other people will read it on that basis. So that is, that is certainly helpful. How are these opinions formed? Well, you know, I've been writing a, a column for the Sunday Times on economics for 
20 years, and I honestly could not tell you how I arrive at the subject and the opinion that I arrive at. I mean, it is a, uh, it is a variety of influences, uh, including people from uh, you know, official circles, including people from the Treasury and the rest of government, including people from the Bank of England, including people from the city and business, but mainly uh, people I meet who are outside all that network. And it's this point you were making about, uh, somebody was making earlier about reflecting what, what people out there are concerned with. I mean, we, we, we used to have a sort of model uh, target audience for the Sunday Times business section, which was the uh, medium-sized businessman in, uh, I think, in size of company rather than size of businessman, uh, in, uh, in, in Birmingham, rather than the, uh, rather than the, uh, the, you know, the foreign exchange dealer or the, uh, the stockbroker. And I still have in mind, in the, uh, in the way I write, that uh, you, know, you have to, you have to uh, address what concerns them. So they've read all this stuff that I've read today about unemployment, how bad is it? How worried should they be? So there is always a, there is always a, a, a you know, in, from to me, an attempt to explain, uh, sometimes reassure, sometimes worry them even more, and but address the, the things that they are they are they are most interested in. In terms of the leaders, which which I also you know write with with the uh, you know of course with the editor. Um, I mean, what always? I, I mean, I never know who reads uh, who reads leaders. Uh, I don't know if anybody reads leaders. Um, I suspect they are read uh, in uh, in government. Um, I know that they are read, and you know, maybe we do them for the uh, today program newspaper summary. You know, just to give them something to say. But, uh, uh, but we uh, the the extent to which there is um, there is uh, influence there, I don't know. Uh, the extent to which we are influenced to, uh, to write something, um, either internally or externally, is uh, much less than I would expect. I mean, you know, the, the number of people from government or elsewhere who ring up and say, you know, we hear you might be writing a leader on so-and-so, uh, you might take into account this, this, and this. That very rarely happens. So the, you know, the extent to which people try and influence leaders, as far as the Sunday Times is concerned, I don't know whether it's, it's different on the Times uh, and the mail and our other papers, but uh, is, is very limited uh, indeed. So, um, uh, and that's, that's, you know, that, that's quite interesting to me. Uh, and as I say, the extent to which we influence everybody, anybody, is, is hard to take. I mean, my, my general sense is that um, if editorial, the wilder the editorial, the easier it is to ignore. So if you write an editorial saying, we need to uh, pull out of the EU tomorrow, that's very easy for government to ignore. If you write an editorial which is actually constructively difficult, you know, you're, you're in the right territory, you know, you know the government is considering something and you are, you're, you're operating within that territory, but you're saying that the precise thing that they are considering is wrong, they should consider this in, instead, then you've got a good chance of influencing it. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to measure that influence. Thank you. I think you're very wise to sort of kick over the traces of the sources of your columns. I must be an occupational hazard being seen as an economics expert. But John Kay always says if he's foolish enough at a dinner party to introduce himself as an economist, he's immediately asked, so what do you think is going to happen to house prices? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's better, better to keep your... But that's right. People do always ask. And 
I used to just say, well, I, you just look around you. You just see what people yeah. do. I, I quite like being asked that, actually. I don't, I don't mind that at all. But, you know, oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's a fine. No, not now. Not now. Tell us, David. Afterwards, Stephanie. Thank you. It's quite a worry. Market sensitive. There we are. So some thoughts there, lots of interesting thoughts on this thing called comment. And very salutary and very helpful to be reminded that it's relatively modern recently, particularly this explosion of them. Um, something about, I mentioned that conventional idea about news being devalued, which I don't necessarily agree with. Something about also perhaps shifting budgets on newspapers. Roy Greenslade's written tonight about uh, the decline or the reduction of pure investigative journalism, which of course is very expensive. And uh, as C.P. Scott said all those years ago, comment is free, uh, although maybe not even worth that much sometimes if it's not well formed or based on uh, research or interested opinions. It's really not free. <laughs> <laughs> we pay people. That's yeah. true. That's true. And the mail pays more. Double and <laughs> over commissions in order. Perhaps you could indicate with a raised eyebrow or finger or a piece of rolled up newspaper if you have a question. And if you, when you do have a question, could you say uh, who you are? You are being recorded. You are on the record. You cannot go off the record retrospectively, but don't let that inhibit you in any way. Uh, I can see a hand at the back. Hello, uh, Nicola Bates from Eldon Atfield. Uh, I'm interested in how little digital communication seems to play a part in influence. And obviously, conversation is only useful if it has an influence. So, Jenny, I was intrigued to understand from your perspective who you look at when you first get into. Uh, the office in the morning, who you most care about in terms of comment, and how that then filters down your priority list. Thanks. Can we take Peter York as well? Um, I wonder what people think about what I call the unacknowledged contributions to comment and public conversation, which starts with a marvellous bit of creativity, which is Room 101 in Derry Street, which is the room in which people discover or the, the 20 Polish workers inside a house in Eaton Square, or the rogue Deb in the riot. It's the most wonderful. Those things are very important in shaping public conversations, as are the latter-day equivalents of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion that you get online. <laughs> Those things that roll around, which make taxi drivers tell you that Al Gore has the biggest vapor trail in the world and is the richest person in America. And you think, how did you know that? And the other thing that I think is unacknowledged is um, online, the secondary comment. The secondary comment where a sort of comment that wasn't, almost wasn't allowed outside the family and the football pitch becomes public. And if you look at the secondary comment, let's say, on Guido Fawkes, it's jaw-dropping, but it's as nothing to things you visit which originate from America. You mean the reader's comments? The reader's, the reader's comments. comments. Yeah. The readers must be getting readers. And that sets a new order because it's the unacknowledged pattern behind what people say. Because in polite places like this, you can't articulate those things because they're a bit indelicate. But they're banging away in your head. Thank you. So there was one specifically to you, Jenny, but I'll, I'll let others come in on uh, whom do you turn to first? Who, who really matters to you? 
And then a second question is also, well we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that one first, then we'll take Peter's question. Yeah, so now I'm going to, I'm, I worry that I, I'm going to have to appear very, very well read. Um, obviously, I, I, I tend to read the summaries of the news wherever they come. We get that in summary form, and then I do tend to, then there's Guido as an obvious one. Then the, I do like reading the comments. I've heard I do read the, mm. I'll read the news summaries, and I'll then read the kind of leaders, the comments, and the, uh, and ge things like Guido, I guess. And I do, I do, for a story that we might be concerned about for any reason, we definitely would go down looking at the readers' comments as well. Who else do you turn to first? Who do you, who's important to you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, pr I'm probably not. I'm probably not going to single out um, which of my colleagues I read and which of them I don't read. <laughs> but in, ter in terms of readers' comments, it's um, I can't explain this. But there's why is it that the terms of debate in twi on Twitter are relatively polite, uh, extraordinarily polite in, in certain circumstances, and people from different um, places on the ideological spectrum uh, retweet each other and exchange. Sometimes, but even when they, when they get into an argument, it's usually done pretty carefully. But you go to Guido, as you said, or um, any of those kind of sites, and it's absolutely vile stuff. It's just sort of litany of abuse and horror. And I don't know. I don't know why that is. Is there something about Twitter that it's uh, it's like a good a, con a good conversation in a bar? It's possibly reintroduced that side of journalism since we all moved out of Fleet Street that we can talk to each other properly. Um, and that readers like being able to engage with people, and if they do so politely, journalists will talk back to them uh, politely. But uh, you're right, I, I read the Guido stuff, and I, I, I'm not quite sure who are these people, where are they coming from? Do they have the vote? They do. Yeah. Um, I don't think comment is the part of the newspaper that pushes debate. I think news pushes debate. And I think the mark of a successful comment piece, the, the things I'm most proud of that we do, are when we have created the front page splash out of one of our pieces. And I think news is what drives, what drives everything. Um, and I think people are hungry for news, they're hungry to know more, and that's one of the reasons they engage online. And uh, the advent of comments on stories and on comment pieces has been fantastic. Um, it's, uh, I think that we've always been guilty over the years of not thinking enough about our readers in the first instance. You know, when we wake up in the morning, we need to think, what does a reader of our brand want to know about today, and whose opinion do they care about? You know, who do, I mean, they don't care about what certain people think about certain things, and a lot of the people they don't care about are people who offer pieces to us. But there are certain things they really do want to know about. And, um, and we need to think of them. And this allows us, getting the comments on the pieces, really allows us to know what they think in a way that, frankly, we never knew before. And all the research about newspaper readership numbers and sales figures, nobody knows who goes into the newsagent and picks up a copy of the paper. This was always in an industry which was, I think, too divorced from its readers. So um, I think comments have become, have become a fantastic sort of way of seeing what people are doing. And um, we had a piece. I think it was a week last Saturday by Matthew Paris, in which he said, uh, the good times are over, folks. Um, he's been off to buy gold. They'd run out of gold. He went to buy silver instead. Um, and he said that he thought that we had lived beyond our means, that we had to prepare for a time in which we simply weren't going to have the standard of living we expected. And the comments just poured in. And because there were so many people interested in this, we got a piece done the following week by Matt Ridley as a sort of counterbalance to that, um, to keep that conversation going, because we could see the Pardon me, the readers are interested. We never used to have that before. It's a wonderful liberation. Yeah, 
Now you know what's kind of just coming from one one um, one thing. Commentators say is that uh, some really horrible and unpleasant things get put up, which have to be taken down by moderators. But the other, the traditional, rather lofty attitude was, I don't read the comments. You know, I don't need to know about the comments. And this is really an old school idea. You know, we didn't have to have our email address at the bottom. We we offered these pronouncements. And any a grateful public. Received. Any any columnist who says he or she doesn't read the column, uh, the comments at the end of their piece is lying. I mean, they all sit, they sit, columnists sit up late at night um, getting annoyed and wound up. They do, they do take it incredibly seriously. But I mean, we, we, have, we have a whole team of people, as I'm sure other people do, who spend their time making sure we don't put up comments, which we shouldn't have there. You know, we have a moderation team, that's, that's what we, yeah. we do on our, on our system, yeah. um, to try and stop that kind of thing from happening. But you can't divorce yourself from those things, even if it's uncomfortable. There will be people now writing on Twitter, have you heard that stupid woman saying <laughs> that kind of rubbish? And it won't be very nice, but you know, that's, that's um, what people think. Women do cop it worse than men, by and large? I don't know, I don't know that that's true, actually. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that's, I don't know if that's true. The thing that's profoundly shocking are the things that people write underneath our Jewish columnist pieces sometimes, not on our site, because obviously they're never going to be able to do that. But if you look sometimes on sites which are not moderated, that's profoundly shocking. And that, that for me is the worst thing that I've, I've seen happen. I, I don't know if there's a gender bias, not that I've picked up, but others may know better. Yeah, I mean, just on uh, Peter's point, I mean, the, the uh, you do get you do get those sort of iconic stories that everybody talks about. The, the problem we often have is that um, everybody then wants to comment on it on the Sunday Times. So if there's one big story in the week, then you have to you have to persuade people, the regular columnists, that maybe that's best best left to somebody else, and uh, and that is that is a difficulty. I mean, in terms of the uh, you know commenters, um, or as I affectionately call them, nutters, I mean, uh, you know, um, it's uh, it is a, a challenge. I mean, I think uh, you know properly moderated com uh, comments are um, are excellent and necessary. Uh, if you have, as I do, I've got you know my own website as well as the paper's website, and it just became too difficult to moderate those because there are some. There are some weird people out there. Guido, Guido doesn't bother, so he lets all the weirdos go. Uh, but um, and that's fine for him. But um, there are some strange people uh, who, um, you know, who want to put pornography up on an economics website. You know, so uh, I don't know what that's all about. But so it's you know, so so it, it, it can be a, can be a bit a bit odd. But, um, but as I say, the. Um, you know, we, we, it's a debate, I mean, and it's a better debate than we, uh, we used to get. Uh, I mean, since, since the advent of email, you do get a much bigger response from, uh, from readers than ever before, uh, and that's, that's got to be healthy. Guido is um, certainly opinion, but it's not really journalism as we were brought up to do it, is it? He breaks stories. He really he does break Two stories. Ones. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think you know, the elders of Zion point that, um, that, uh, that, that Peter made earlier, I think one of the surprising things about some of those stories is how true they are. I think we went through a whole period of time when we thought all the stories about Princess Diana were not true. We assumed they were not true. Most of them were absolutely true. I even had a room that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown didn't really get on very well. <laughs> 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 um, we have... Uh, ah, a show of hands. Uh, David, uh, here, and uh, perhaps we could take, uh, and Andrew, perhaps we could take four in a huddle and see if we can get the conversation flying over the place. David. 
I'm David Seymour. I was the political editor of the Mirror Group. I wrote Leaders for the Mail as well. I still write Leaders for the Sunday Mirror. I boast on my blog that I've written more leaders than anybody in the history of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really upset by what David said about nobody uh, taking any notice of leaders. Although I have to say, I think it is certainly true nowadays. There was a time, uh, I remember when I started writing leaders, which was must have been about 30 years ago on the Mirror, they'd done some uh, market research and 30% of the readers then read the leaders, but they were much smaller papers, the leaders were on page two. And I think it's probably true that not many people read the leaders. And I was going to say uh, two things. One is I was there and saw Dacre speak at Leveson today. Uh, and, um, what, and where you went wrong was you weren't shaking with rage like he was when he was delivering <laughs> his speech. But um, he, he, when he came to his sort of peroration towards the end, uh, he, he mentioned two things in which the, the, the press, i.e. the Daily Mail, I, I, I say that not critically, I mean, I think he meant it, I think it's true, has set the agenda, and one was Europe and one was immigration, both of which, even though I wrote leaders for him, I completely disagree with with him over. But I think it's true that the Mail and the other papers have set a sort of, it's not, it's, it's an agenda and it is a public conversation. So I was going to say um, 10 minutes ago, there isn't a public conversation, but of course there is. And I think as, as Peter said, um, uh, that uh, where does it come from? And it does come from stories and you do meet people in bars and you do meet taxi drivers, you do meet people in the shops who are coming out with stuff which you know is statistically and factually not true, but that is the public conversation and that is what affects the politicians. My friend uh, Stuart Lee, the comedian, was in a taxi and the taxi driver was giving him all sorts of nonsense and he said, but I've got the facts here. And the driver said, oh, well, you can prove anything with facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some questions. Andrew, yep. Uh, Andrew White from the Foreign Office. A uh, couple of th thoughts. Uh, I was speaking to the same group of Chinese communications directors as Jenny <laughs> a few days after she did. And one of the things they really struggled with when, we, when I spoke to them was the role of the BBC. And they really struggled with a a publicly funded broadcaster not being a state broadcaster. They found it even harder on the World Service, but let's not go there. <laughs> um, and I just wonder, in terms of what frames of the conversation, the particular role and the particular British nature mm. of, the, of the settlement we have with the BBC in terms of its influence on <coughs> the conversation as a, as a publicly funded but not representative state broadcaster, which is, a, as I say, it's a concept people outside the UK really struggle with. And the second thing is, and I, I really want to agree with Ian about, about the primacy of print, and I think Anne's analysis of the sort of dialectic that happens between print and, and digital in terms of defining you know, the, the, the conversation is, is right. But I wonder if that's a transitory phase, and I wonder because of an experience I had <coughs> a couple of years ago now in a, in a previous job, when we had a very critical piece about the organisation I was working for uh, posted on the website of a national newspaper, um, but not in print. And I said to the press office, well done, you kept it out of the print. It's, uh -huh. it's, on, the, it's on the website. And she said, yeah, but it's on the website. It means it'll be there forever. People forget about the, the print version tomorrow, but they'll be searching that forever on the, on the digital version. So I wonder if there's a kind of, if, if, and I think that's a function fact that I'm an old fart and she was young and actually understood how the dynamic was changing. Uh, but I also wonder if, if that's a marker of the transition phase we're in, where actually the power may still be with print and traditional broadcasts, but it may be about to shift at some point over the next few years. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And behind you? 
As I say in Panto season? Yes. yes. My name is Patrick Hayes from Spikes and the Institute of Ideas. And uh, I've just noticed here that Guido Fawkes' ears are burning on Twitter, apparently. He's <laughs> very flattered that you're talking about him uh-huh. <laughs> at the moment. People are tweeting various things. Um, and I, I guess it kind of goes on to that, actually, because uh, I guess we started off talking about the Leveson inquiry and um, uh, took my mind back to the super injunctions earlier on this year where uh, print newspapers were faced with this kind of bizarre situation where everyone knew that Ryan Giggs was a footballer that had the affair and there's a super injunction taken out. Everyone knew on Twitter, 75,000 people outed them on Twitter, and newspapers were unable to do that. You had uh, Iban Lewis um, last week or the week before talking about journalism licenses, so you know, you'd effectively need a license to appear in print. And I guess my concern is, are regulations post-Hatgate going to start to lead to a situation where you have this... Um, almost clique of professional journalists that are ever more estranged from the public and what they're actually talking about online. And I I guess um, my second question, kind of following on from that, is that I write for the the Huffington Post. Uh, People talk about comment being free, but it's not really free for the Times and the Daily Mail. But uh, a lot of people I know now who are, you know, the opinion formers of tomorrow in many ways, uh, and have a lot to say, do write for next to nothing, um, do find it liberating that they can publish almost anything they like, and if they see something not in national media, it can go up on the Huffington Post within a few hours, or, or other publications. I mean, aren't you concerned that almost uh, these, these are kind of nibbling at your heels in terms of influence, and increasingly, because uh, the internet moves very fast, uh, I mean, Facebook, for example, you can't even publish a Times article on Facebook because of the paywall. So, I mean, aren't you concerned that you're losing this kind of online sphere and it's moving much faster? And could you not be a bit caught up in sentiment around uh, the importance of print? Thanks. Should we take it there? That's probably enough to be getting on with, isn't it? I know there are some more hands. Uh, so, BBC, uh, David, what is this public conversation? Uh, web and paper, and then continuing that thought. Uh, the power, the rising power of digital and online. Who would like to deal with all, of, some if not all of that? Can I just make one, yes. obs- one observation about the, uh, about the changing nature of, of, of comment? W- one thing that I notice um, that I think, is a, I think is a problem is that there are some fantastic, you know, on the Telegraph uh, and in various other places on The Guardian, there are some fantastic young voices coming through and uh, some of them are starting to write pieces in the print edition as well. They started on the blogging side. Uh, and they've got lots to say and they've got lots of ideas. It does concern me that they haven't been reporters. You know, most of the sort of the, the traditional last 40, uh, if we count the last 40 years as a tradition, has been that people have at least done some time as a reporter sifting, attempting to sift fact from fiction and learning some of the formulas and ways to present information and how not to bury the story in the 24th paragraph and how to tell people something interesting. And I, I fear uh, for um, the columnists of the future that they, then they're, they're being denied that because they're, just being, they're leaving university and going straight into uh, writing a blog for, for, one of the, for one of the main papers. And those who decide to go down the news route in those newsrooms are very often, because they're writing for the web and they're writing for print as well, they might be producing 10 stories a day and they're never leaving the office and they're never getting that buzz of making contacts, talking to people and finding out what's going on. So I, I'm slightly worried about um, the next generation. Can I address the point you made about those things surviving? I think that's more an issue for reputation management than it is for journalism. 
So companies who have had reports about them, or individual people, um, will, will say, um, uh, yeah, you're, you're so good at your search engine optimization that your report of my court case five years ago is still coming up at the top of Google. Um, and it's really difficult for me now because I'm a trainee solicitor. Uh, and I didn't actually get convicted and body, you know, and on that goes. And that's a real issue for companies and it's a real issue for individuals. And you get asked if you will take things down from a site. And that's a very big deal. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of erasing it um, you know, from the newspaper. And for companies in particular, I can see that that's harmful. But it's often not wrong. Uh, you know, the thing that they don't want to have appear there is something that is critical of them, but it is true. Mm. So I think, that's, I think it's more about that. Um, and as I say, it came to me as a complete surprise, this sense of the sort of ephemeral nature of, of general news reporting and journalism. One of the things that is different a bit about the BBC, um, to sort of segue onto that, um, <laughs> is that I think, um, honestly, there's a link, um, <laughs> is that... Uh, the BBC is in an extraordinary position, which I think it has earned by the quality of what it does. And the, what, the reason that you can't actually get your material out there online very easily to a huge audience is because there's no easy way to market it. And that's why we used to pour so much effort into search engine optimization for Google, because that was the marketing route into all online copy. 30% of our readers used to come through Google when I was doing online. I'm three years out of date now. So, um, so if you're trying to market stuff and you're the BBC, you can advertise what you do and where, what you've got on your sites on the BBC. You can tell your readers, your viewers all the time about that. And so I think, they've, I think what the BBC does online is much more powerful in that sense because it can tell people what it does. Um, and I, as I say, I think that the reason that it has that kind of position is because it's done what it's done very well for a very long time. Um, just in terms of your, your point about uh, you know, competition from online comments, um, I think there has been a big shift there. And you know, I, I always used to think it was just in terms of information. You know, the cl classic uh, 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 example I used to think about was if you had a plane crash, and the plane crash was reported, it was on the news bulletins, everything else, uh, they reported some more on the evening news, following day's paper, the daily papers would have, you know, who the suspected victims were and so on. And then, but you have to wait to, for the Sunday Times at the weekend for the, the double page spread with the big graphic and explaining exactly what happened. Now, that's been, that's been compressed into, you know, a couple of hours now. There will, there'll be graphics on 24-hour uh, on TV. Things are, uh, things have moved very very, very rapidly, and the uh, you know the technology, computer-aided graphics, and so on. But that's also true now for uh, for comments. So uh, you know we we may have given the impression um, that you know it doesn't it doesn't exist until a newspaper appears in print form, and we've commented on it, and that's uh, and that starts up the debate off. You can't wait for that now. You know you have to uh, you have to comment because so many people who are not attached to newspapers will comment almost immediately on things. I'm talking about people who've got their own blogs and websites and so on. So newspapers have to compete with that, with their own, with their own sites. And you have to have online comments almost immediately something happens. And then you know, you'll get a different version the following morning. But you, you can't wait until the next day before starting the debate off. It has to, you have to address it almost straight away that something happens. And you know, I do that through my own blog and through, uh, you know, sometimes on the, 
on the Times Sunday Times blog uh, website. But uh, and we all have to respond to that now. I think it's uh, it, you know the, the the pace has increased uh, enormously. So it's interesting in terms of facts and reporting that uh, Mike Skopinko, the FT, who was the aviation correspondent for many years, told me that the first thing you hear about a plane crash is always wrong. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's had years of fights with news desks trying to say, look, I know they're saying that. It's wrong. Yeah, it sure, won't be sure. wrong. Um, some more um, <coughs> questions. Oh, yes, there was a, a lady at the back and um, a couple of hands. Oh, and there was a gentleman waiting already, wasn't there? Yes. So, quite a few, in other words. Please take it in. Hello, I'm Caroline Deal from the Media Trust. I'd be interested in the panel's opinions on um, how much you think charities set the debate and set the terms of oh. public conversation. And, um, and if you think they do, whether you think that they are genuinely reflecting the concerns of their members and beneficiaries, um, or whether that's driven by you know, the fundraising department or, or whatever. Thank you. Thank you. And the gentleman in the middle was waiting. Yes, Graham Rumney, R3, the Insolvency Trade Board. My question is a general one, really, for um, Anne and others. How do you evaluate how good your columnists are? Uh -huh. oh. <coughs> Very good. Dangerous question. Yes. Um, and uh, James had a question. Yes. James Woodhausen from De Montfort University. I took the tube all the way here. Uh, tonight, which flagrantly disobeyed the advice of the public health minister, Anne Milton, of whom I've not heard, actually, uh, <laughs> who said that I should have dropped off two stops before to fight my obesity. I don't know how this goes down with the Polish chefs that you mentioned, uh, Anne, but uh, it seems to me that much of the discussion today is about health, lifestyle, obesity, uh, and also not building on the green belt. And I put it to you that the, the working class doesn't really have a voice in setting the terms of the public conversation like it did perhaps in the 30s. The ruling class doesn't want to rule, can't rule, and is in a situation of um, drift, I would say. So I put it to you that in terms strictly of the, the title of the debate, it's the middle class that sets the terms of the public conversation around silly issues like plastic bags, which was the front page headline in the Daily Mail recently, with the Mail announcing that David Cameron was supporting its campaign, uh, and also you know, not building any houses, where the Daily Telegraph is in, in line deliciously with the Labour Party in saying no more houses should be built in this country. There are no voices calling for more houses, but the the general preoccupations uh, are very middle class. I hope, Anne, you're going to go to those Polish chefs and really listen to what they say and find out what they are discussing, because that would be edifying for us all. Thanks, Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks. Um, yeah, actually, my question follows on very neatly from what you've just said, because I, I was going to say, I, I don't really think we're talking about the public conversation here. I think we're talking about a conversation that is a conversation between various sort of elite audiences of different types. And I mean, in fairness, I think everybody on the panel has sort of acknowledged this in, in different ways, but certainly my experience of doing dreaded focus groups is that by and large what they are talking about is not what politicians are talking about or what journalists like yourselves are talking about. They're in a very, very different place. Um, you know, just one little example, doing focus groups on the Monday evening after the weekend where Gordon Brown had decided to call, not to call the election, um, you know, and that the press had been full of nothing else and the media had been full of nothing else 
And I started off the focus group saying, well, has anything sort of struck you in the news today? <laughs> and they all looked at me slightly blankly. And then somebody mentioned a sporting thing, you know, and nobody talked about it unprompted. And I, I suppose my point really is that we, we know this is true. We all know it's true. And it's borne out by the fact that, that people aren't buying newspapers as much as they were. Um, I think social media is a small subset of the people that are buying newspapers, and they're all doing it the same. Does it matter that the public are not included in the public conversation? Well, I think it does, but I'm, I'm intrigued to know what the panel think and if they think it does matter what they're going to do about it. Thank you. I would, say, I, would, I would say that you were right the first time. You should have called that election. <laughs> <laughs> so, charities. Do you remember when Brian Mulwinney, I think, totted up the, the cost of all the claims on the Today programme? And by 9 o'clock, charities and others wanted hundreds of billions of pounds spent, that was what he said. Uh, how much do they influence public debate? We'd like the appraisal notes, please, Anne, of all your columnists, the, the, their performance <laughs> targets for next year and, and the ones who are in the danger zone. Uh, is this all just a middle-class conspiracy? And are, is, is there a few people just talking to each other, uh, enjoying themselves, while fewer and fewer people buy the papers or care? Can I start well, with yeah. the last one? No, yeah. sorry. I think, I think essentially, um, High finance went bust in 2008, and I think what's happening now is that politics is in the process of going bust. I think essentially, I think large numbers of voters have, they can see the wiring. Um, at its most sophisticated, that's people who've seen in the thick of it and take an ironic, detached view of politics and watch, as Danny Finkelstein said this morning in a brilliant column, um, you know, essentially said that they're watching the Fox scandal as a movie of his, of his life. Yeah. Like the problem for the political parties is a, is a, is a great one because uh, essentially there is this, there's clearly a thirst for something different and there was in the, the last election which the Tories completely failed to read and there's an appetite for authenticity um, and possibly for someone telling them not quite, what, not exactly what they want to hear. I think, we've, I think that process of politics for the last 20 years has now, has now run its course. Uh, and the first political leader who emerges from either left or right with some kind of set of answers to this will, will do spectacularly well because it'll be fresh and interesting. So do you think Ed Miliband was heading the right lines but muffed it? Because he was I, saying yeah, something I think, similar to that. Yeah, I think, he's, I think that, that is, it is greatly to the Tories' advantage that it's Ed Miliband who's saying it, but he's onto something. <laughs> Um, and it and in the end, it won't. In the end, I don't think it will do him any good because he's failing the blink test. People have just decided. Sherman, a focus group. I'm sure you've done it. Um, number ten, Andrew Cooper. They do it all the time. You just show the guy's face, and I know and like Ed. He's a warm, charming, interesting guy. But that's not what the public sees um, for some reason. But he is. He is. He is onto something about the power of vested interests uh, and about the bankruptcy of politi about politics. But it's not yet resonating. On the issue of, of class irrelevance, etc., we are a lot more middle class as a country than we were in the 1930s. If we were still reflecting the makeup of the country in the 1930s, I think we would be very out of touch. Um, if you look at the Times even 20 or 30 years ago, we would have been publishing the naval defence estimates. This is what we would think of as over there news. This was not in our lives. Um, if you look at our comment pages tomorrow, we will have a piece about whether Liverpool were right to suggest they would break away from the foreign rights deal over the Premiership. 
We would never, ever have had things like that on the pages a few years ago. I think that newspapers are far more in their readers' lives than they ever were before. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why um, the tabloids write such a lot about things like the X Factor, because that is what people talk about. And, um, and I don't think that the reason that people are moving away from newspapers is to do with the fact that newspapers are less involved in their lives. I think the opposite has happened. I think you've seen, um, you've seen us move into territory that was previously magazine territory much more in all areas of, of, of the press. You've got the, you know, the weekend FT. I mean, everything like this has changed. Um, the reason people buy newspapers <coughs> less, I think, is because their lives are far busier and they consume their news in different ways. And that includes the fact that they you know, also read all of us now on their iPads and on their iPhones. Has Lord Rees-Mogg been informed that there is a piece on association football? <laughs> Can I tell you a story about yeah. William Rees-Mogg? Yeah. So, William is 83, and on the day when um, President Obama came to address the two Houses of Parliament, he finished speaking at about 5 o'clock, and the editor said, James Harding, he said, I know it's five o'clock, but I would really like somebody who can assess that piece now for tonight's paper, really give it some thought, you know, put it into perspective. So we were thinking, okay, who's been there, who's listened, who might have some views, who can we get hold of? So I rang William's house. He hadn't yet returned from the House of Lords. He doesn't have a mobile phone. And, um, and his daughter took a message and said, she said, I'm sure he's coming back. I'll leave a message. I'm just going out myself. I spoke to him at quarter to six, and at quarter past seven, he filed a thousand words, having heard other people do the same thing because you compare him to De Gaulle. I mean, he's, you know, he was one of the only people who had actually seen you know, th or heard three out of four people do this. And, uh, and we all got down on our knees with <laughs> complete respect. Excellent. Can I? Yes. Okay. I mean, just on the uh, charity point, I mean, I think some charities are brilliant at generating news coverage, which then results in comments, uh, and, and some are very bad at doing it. So it, it, it does vary, but some the, the, the better charities are extremely good at it. Um, in, in terms of whether we've, you know, we, we don't reflect what's going on in the, in, in the world or in the country, um, I mean, I, you know, I would say in most papers, you know, all, all human life is, is in there somewhere, if you look for it. I mean, whether, whether you know, your focus group people are interested in Wayne Rooney or they're interested in something. And we do, you know, there's, there's always this uncomfortable moment in editorial conferences of the Sunday Times where, where we have to make a decision whether we're going to uh, write about something which is not, not natural for us to write about. You know, do we write about Jade Goody because everybody else is talking about her? And it, it, it is sometimes this sort of slightly snooty broadsheet uh, approach to uh, a, a topic which those, those, those you know, people out there are talking about or the X Factor or whatever. But we do do it, and also, you know, I, I, the, the problem I always have at the Sunday Times is the, uh, you know, the the, um, the view of what um, what the average income is in the country is always slightly skewed upwards, you know. So, uh, you know, let's uh, let's do the examples, and we'll have we'll have uh, you know two families, one on fifty thousand, one on a hundred thousand, and that will that will cover the population, you know. And, uh, uh, but, uh, 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 but you know, it's not quite that bad. But, the, uh, but, but we, I think we do reflect what what people are concerned. There was a good example three or four weeks ago where, um, you know, the, the sports editor said, well, you know, all the subs in the sports department, they're really worried about what's going to happen to the economy. They've seen all this stuff around about the eurozone and everything else, and uh, these are you know, ordinary people with mortgages. You know, they're not not, you know, enormously well paid. 
and they were concerned, and that was good enough for us to do a, re you know, a bigger number on it than we would have done otherwise. And I think you know, what they were reflecting was probably what you'd have got in one of your focus groups. And I do agree that you know, planning, you know, endless debates about planning and the National Trust and hands off our land and also you know, are incredibly tedious. I think uh, phone hacking got to be extremely tedious after the early stages and it became an inside, inside the beltway issue, uh, however important it was. Uh, but, and we do get into that, I think, you know, and we, you know, we, 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 you know, we do it because everybody else is doing it and they do it more because we're doing it, you know, and I think that, that becomes a very, very um, tedious process. But I hope we also reflect some of those concerns that are out there that people have. Jenny. Um, just on the charities point, having been Director of Corporate Affairs at Cancer Research UK a few years ago, and we, we actually set up a pu public policy unit on the basis that we used to fund um, something called ASH, which you probably haven't heard of, which mm. is kind of an umbrella group to promote um, kind of anti-smoking legislation. And we set up our own unit because on the basis, and I made the case that um, we could use a much more powerful and better known brand and also all the kind of fundraisers and donors behind it to have a, make a more compelling case for all that. Um, which we did, but of course we did, never did actually ask any of those donors or fundraisers. Um, we just kind of used the, the force behind it. Um, just in terms of moving, on a separate point, moving, I don't know if Gus will appreciate this, but he is kind of, he has resigned, so there's not much to do now. Dead meat. In terms of moving some of these public policy issues into the places that, that they don't usually reach, I think one of the things he found most amusing in recent months is when he actually got his plan B onto yeah. news in briefs. Yeah. Can I Maybe we should be targeting that more. <laughs> on, on the charities point, um, I think charities are in a tricky position because I would say we reject 99 out of 100 pieces offered to us by charities. And that is because there is a procedure that charities go through where essentially they write a position paper. They don't write an opinion piece. It's not what the author of the piece thinks. And, and position papers are boring. And you could have them on a set of slides at the back. And they say, this is a statement of what we as an organization believe in. That's not an opinion piece. And they often are written by two people at once. That's never an opinion piece. <laughs> um, and, and it's so, a dog bites man piece as well, quite often. It's all of that, yeah. and so uh, and they are. So I think they can be very dangerous, and you can feel they've come out of the unit that produces the pieces that's trying to get the pieces in the paper. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that charities do all the time now is they say, "Would you like a piece by Bianca Jagger about Sri Lanka?" And you say to them, "This has really happened. Has Bianca Jagger been to Sri Lanka?" And they say, "No." And you say, "Well, then probably not, <laughs> um, because we would be perpetrating a con on our readers if we if we do that." Um, so they say, here's a celeb, here's us, the celeb is a supporter of our charity, we will bolt the two together. Now sometimes you get really brilliant celebrity writers who, have, who actually really are involved, who are allowed to write their own piece, and that's fantastic. Um, but, but there are those kinds of tricks and those kinds of things. I think the charity sector has to be slightly careful about this because it does itself no favours. Mm. And people do want to hear from charities. They're a really important part of our society. And when those people say something who don't normally, and they say it in an honest way, it can have a huge effect. But I think people shouldn't think we don't notice the difference. Yeah, and that's, that, that is a, a, an occupational hazard, I think. It's not just charities. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, dreads I used to have was getting a call from the Treasury saying, 
Gordon would like to write a piece for you for oh, this weekend, no. you know. Yeah. And, uh, Three years of charity. <laughs> <laughs> on the point about measuring performance and so on, I think Ian's right. I think columnists do look to see how many comments they've had, how many emails they get, are there letters to the editor being published? These are all indicators of success. And I think the worry, or at least the tension in this digital age, is this business of blogs and columns and hits. And there was a story in, I think, Private Eye about the Telegraph, so it may or may not have been true, but the bloggers were being measured quite uh, precisely on the volume of traffic to their blogs. And of course, this encourages people to crank it up a bit. Uh, now, I think, was it Badgett said that journalists' job is to first simplify and then exaggerate? Well, maybe that's true, but, but something, <laughs> something worrying might happen in the blogosphere, I think, into columns, perhaps, if you're going to be measured in that way. It's just an opinion. Um, a last round of questions, I think, before we uh, wrap up. Um, I can see four. <coughs> a lovely distribution of hands. One, two, three, and four. Uh, in any order. Who gets a microphone first? Market forces. There Market forces, thank you. Um, two things. One, you've obviously and quite understandably talked about the UK, and indeed about London, dare I suggest. Um, what about comparisons abroad? And not, I don't just mean the US, but Europe and, and other languages. Obviously a problem for a lot of us, including myself in that, we don't speak very well all these other languages that like a lot of other people do. But what about the comparison between the role of, of comment in the UK media as against its role and its influence over the public conversation in other countries, other democratic countries, leave China out of it, a slightly red herring, dare I suggest. Um, the uh, other question is, uh, surely you presented it as a generic point, comment, but actually each papers that the people who own the papers and, and edit and manage them and edit them are there to sell papers in a commercial environment. So you have different audiences and I wonder if you could explore that area. The Times, the Mail, etc, etc, they're in a different part of the marketplace. So the sort of comment you will take will be different because you're appealing to different sorts of people. They're not just this generic uh, collection of the same people. Thank you. Uh, there was another back row question. Thank you, uh, Jason Nissi, um, Fishburne Hedges, next journalist. Um, uh, just to slightly expand on uh, my friend over here's comment, um, do you think that uh, we're seeing greater access to internationalised comment? I notice, particularly through Twitter, that we're getting uh, a lot of access to things like the New York Times and um, the, the, some of the international publications, which are actually infecting the, the, the debate. And then conversely, to completely do the opposite uh, point, we've talked a lot about class, but what about age? Um, when new trainees join us, I always ask them the question, where do you get your media? And um, without wishing to embarrass the, our current round of trainees, some of whom might actually be here, uh, <laughs> this year's uh, trio all said, we read Twitter. Twitter is the way we get our information and that will deliver links to online sites. Now, essentially, does that mean that, I mean, there's a generation that is not actually picking up papers. They're only actually getting it online. And therefore, they're not necessarily differentiating between whether it's the Times comment pages or the Guardian comment pages, maybe not the Times comment pages, because Twitter, they won't be able to go through the paywall. But uh, the Guardian's comment pages, the Telegraph's comment pages, the Mail's comment pages, they're just seeing comment. And there was a question on the far side and one, yes, please, yeah. 
Uh, Andrew St. George. Uh, I'm a professor of management and I also am a corporate writer. And this means that I ghost columns for people. Um, and the process by which a, a column uh, comes to take place is rather like uh, sausage making or public policy, both of which Bismarck said should never be seen in public. And um, the particular set of columns that, that I have in mind were written and continue to be written for a broadsheet. And success uh, for me and my, and my um, columnist, who is more famous than me, is having a quiver of columns ahead of time so we can both go on holiday. <laughs> uh, so in, in a sense, it's not about comment, it's about our own agenda, what we think might be coming up in the next six, nine months. Uh, there are industries um, which are of a longer wavelength than uh, simply the, the Twitter sphere. And I think that that should be accounted for when we think about how columns come to be written. Thank you. Some can I ask, tricks of the trade. Can I ask whose column you're writing? <laughs> no. <You're not. laughs> there was a final question over here. Yes. Um, my name is Patrick Gilmore, um, DKLM lawyer. Um, you've all made the distinction between opinion and news, which seems to me a bit of a false one. Uh, in 2008, as I was leaving a building society, I was accosted by the BBC journalist who asked me if I'd been withdrawing my savings. And I started my sentence with the word no, and the camera was already coming down. They weren't interested in my story, because I'd said no to that question. Uh, similarly, Benedict Brogan on the MP's expenses um, said that um, they had to make a decision what the story was. And they could have gone with a, an anti-labor story, but they decided to be an equal opportunity destroyer of careers, I think was the phrase he used. Uh, and this morning on, on Radio 4, there was a lady who's been trying to get positive stories about Africa into the media in this country for over a year. And this morning was the first time she had succeeded in having a positive story on the BBC. Um, so when you talk about news, that seems to me very much whatever it, the news people say it is and not um, you know, a, an objective set of facts as you referred to earlier. Uh, could you comment on that? So, the international dimension, which may test the panel's expertise or not, we'll find out. Uh, the age of the readers, the process, the sort of the hidden wiring, the secret business of the, uh, what about the helpful column we might also add that gets written sometimes and published, not just the ghosted one. And uh, the truth and the news, if we're still interested in that as well. So, Easy ones to end with. Uh, Ian. Just on, on the international aspect, I mean, um, I can remember when that, um, that internet thing, which people said would never catch on, I can remember when it started, the excitement of thinking, great, all this access to American comment, um, and this is going to be wonderful. I'm going to read as much American, uh, North American comment as I, as somebody who loves America and loves American politics, as I do read British comment. Uh, it simply hasn't turned out that way. You discover, even though we've been exposed to it, and you've removed the excitement of getting a copy of the New York Times maybe a day late and getting this wonderful foreign thing, um, that actually our approach to comment is very, is very different. And I like British comment. It's, I, I think it's something to do. I think it's more vibrant because American papers tend to be large city monopolies. I think most of their comment is incredibly boring. 
um, and written without uh, any attempt to grab the reader or interest or amuse them. There are exceptions. Um, uh, David Frammell, David Brooks, um, Peggy Noonan, but they're very, very rare. So I actually think the Brits do um, do very well. Even though I work for the Wall Street Journal in Europe, I'm not going to attempt to um, give you a, a run through the foreign pages of the French and uh, uh, the comment pages of the French and Spanish uh, newspapers. All I would observe is that another fact, another feature of that liveliness in Britain is that um, we don't have newspapers that are owned by the state uh, or in hock to the state, and uh, uh, France, in that respect, clearly has a problem. I'm absolutely staggered that anybody files columns in advance. Totally staggered that that would get in a newspaper. Well, Almost everything that's... Even so, everything dates. It dates so quickly. I mean, nearly everything that we run is written the day before it appears. And I think you can smell stuff that, is, that has, has sat there. I mean, things change. They change every single day. They change during the day. They change sometimes at you know, half past nine, half past 10 at night, and you've sent that page, and you have to pull them back. So I'm completely staggered by that um, and fascinated to know where it appears. <laughs> um, on Africa, who was mentioning Africa? Yeah. Uh, I'm quite surprised at that too. I mean, Africa has had shed loads of very good stories this year. It has had fantastic levels of growth in an awful lot of sub-Saharan Africa. And it has had the Arab Spring in North Africa. And so I, I would have thought of all the years, and we had an African com uh, conference this summer, and it was, it was just wonderfully uplifting. Um, so I'm very surprised. I, th I think this is the year when Africa has stopped being talked about solely in terms of famine and war, and has actually started to be talked about in terms of, of economic growth. So I'm, I'm surprised at that. But I do wonder if somebody came to you with a BBC camera and said, you're a no, I think, I have no idea whether this was the case, but I can imagine that it might be because they've already got six no's and they're trying to find a sort of balance. I don't know, but I think that's plausible. Um, I do think we do differentiate a lot between news and opinion. We have conversations about it. We put different colours on and different fonts on the things that are news from opinion. And in every way, we, we do try and differentiate between them. We think it's really important. We may not be doing it well enough, but I would be surprised if that conversation isn't going on in an awful lot of other papers um, as, as well as ours. Um, very briefly on the, uh, the point about Twitter, we don't have enough young readers. Uh, but we're not going to pull them necessarily into newspapers, I don't think. I think they will be people who we pull in through our online mechanisms, through the iPhone app, through the iPad, through Android. I think that's, that's the way we will grow our readers. I don't know whether they will go on to develop a newspaper habit, but everything we do has to be aimed in that way. But of course, the content we're putting up on these things is written by the same people and is the same content. We don't have a different pitch um, for any of those uh, platforms than we have in, on, on the paper. I mean, just on that uh, point, I mean, for as long as I've been in newspapers, people have said that you're, you're never going to get the young generation to read newspapers. And um, uh, most of the time, it's not been true. I think it probably is true now that, uh, that they are accustomed to a different sort of technology. And the, the danger, of course, is that they are, um, they don't, as you, as you implied in your question, they don't differentiate between uh, you know, properly edited, hopefully properly fact-checked, uh, material and stuff that's just just out there. So I think there is 
there is a danger there. Uh, there's a danger that those, uh, those young people will never develop the newspaper habit and may not develop the online newspaper habit either. They may always get their information elsewhere, which is clearly a problem for, uh, for newspapers. I mean, I think your point was more, you know, who sets the news agenda, uh, you know, and we've talked about comment, um, and we've talked a bit about who sets the comment agenda, but, uh, I mean, you're right, it is a, it is a selective process. You know, we, we, we don't write about everything that uh, goes on everywhere in the world. Uh, we try and choose um, stories that we think will interest the readers, and sometimes, you know, you don't get that right, and uh, if you persistently don't get it right, you will you know, you'll find out about it. But uh, it, it is, um, it's a judgment. And, so, you know, and, and often that judgment is, is not, the, uh, not the right judgment. In terms of foreign, um, uh, foreign comment, uh, commentators, um, I mean, I agree with Ian. That, you know, you're, you're, you're all, all, and we, we do have access to a lot more now. And part of that access is through uh, Twitter and all those things. And you get the link. Um, it always surprises me, and they probably think the same about us, how, um, how parochial it, it seems, you know, that um, uh, you all, they're almost writing um, not a different language, in some cases they are, of course, uh, but, you know, they're writing about different subjects, uh, specific things that, uh, in the case of politics, that you would have to be following the story quite closely to be aware of. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, comment, I think, doesn't travel terribly well, you know, so it's, uh, it's specific quite often to, to the countries in which it's written. Jenny, any last thoughts for us? No, I mean, I, I was trying to do just one thing. I was trying to think of any kind of international kind of comment piece I'd ever come across, actually, and bothered with. My auntie used to be the political editor of the South China Post, and as part of that, they used to give her 15 minutes every day on a local Hong Kong Chinese channel to give her opinion on local politics. <laughs> I only ever saw it in Chinese, but I had this, I, <laughs> I suspect it's one of the most tedious forms of comment, and I think we should be um, very pleased that we don't have that in this country. Thank you. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I think you've been extremely well served this evening, all sorts of zingers and insights. My favourite one, my highlight, because it's a column in the making from Ian, is that high finance went bust in 2008, and now politics is going bust too in a similar way. That sounds like an ideal column. <laughs> it's based on reporting, it's based on experience, but it's a strong point of view coming through. 800 words, it writes itself. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, of course, to Editorial Intelligence for making this possible, and uh, I'm sure you'd like to thank our excellent panellists. <laughs>